Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hey everyone, and welcome to Trainer Talks and Tales. You're joined by your co-hosts, Tess and Daisy. Hey Daisy, how's it going? Hey Tess, I am going really well, thank you. We are all, like we always say, hey Tess, that we're so excited for every single episode, but this episode definitely probably means a little bit more to us as well we have such an exciting guest and someone who we've had on our bucket list guest list since day dot of starting this podcast so we're really excited for that but before we obviously get into that Tess how's your week been it was lovely to visit you briefly last week yeah it was so nice to have you there days I really appreciate you coming in to see me and I'm returning the favor next weekend and visiting you at sea life so I'm glad I can come see you and see what you're up to but yeah I've been really good I have my first shout out I want to do this episode I had a lovely girl come over to me today after the show and say that she was such a big fan of train talks and tales and has been listening from the very first episode uh she was working in Canada at Toronto with lots of different animals and she's here visiting Australia we made my day um we love it when people give us some positive reinforcement hey Daisy so (laughs) that was awesome so lovely to meet such a a big fan we'd love to hear it uh but yeah Daisy I can still see you grin from your weekend how are you what's uh been happening in your world Oh, yes. It has been one of the best weekends ever. I've had such a good time. We spent the last four days in Melbourne. Um, So we went down to Melbourne for the Taylor Swift concert, which was just out of this world. I'm not going to go on too much about that because we're here talking to animal people, not fellow Swifties, but... So I'm weird. sure that wouldn't have even have known you went, you know, it wasn't like there was 73 videos on your story. I love it. I was so like, cute. sorry, sorry for the spam, but I have to get a little bit out of me. Um, but that was obviously incredible. Whilst we were down there, though, we had the opportunity to spend the day at Melbourne Zoo and we briefly popped into Sea Life Melbourne as well the next day. And that was really fun. Like I have I've only kind of spent a little bit of time down in Melbourne probably over 10 years ago. So it was really nice to go down and visit the zoo for the very first time. We're really lucky. I've got a couple of really close friends, uh, Heather and Ryan, who used to work at Australia Zoo with me, that now work at Melbourne Zoo. So they came in on their day off and were almost like our tour guides for the day. But we were really lucky as well. We had a couple of people from the Wild Seas Department, which look after the seals and penguins, a couple of the free flight birds as well who showed us a little bit around their seal training, which was really cool. Obviously something myself and Colleen, who I went down with, are really interested in. So that was really fun. We got to see their Australian fur seal, which was really cool too, and some of their really awesome training. And then we got to hang out with the elephant herd, which was really, really special. I know just how kind of in depth a lot of elephant training can be, but this was great. We were able to sit just sort of straight at the sidelines for a whole hour and watch all of the training that these elephants are participating in. So we're able to watch voluntary blood withdrawals. Uh, We saw a little bit of conditioning with some of the younger elephants. I think they've had three juveniles that have been born over the last sort of couple of years. So quite, quite young colony, uh, colony, sorry, quite young herd. 
And so it was really amazing to be able to see that, see some of their cues as well. Some of the elephants came from Thailand originally, so some of their cues are still in a different language. They're slowly transitioning them to English, which is really interesting seeing them pair the new cue with the old cue and the elephants starting to pick that up as well. It was great to learn about sort of the criteria that they're looking for. And we're really lucky that Phoebe um, and Katie spent a lot of time with us going through lots of different things and what they're looking out for and how it all started. So really, really special time spent with them. And we kind of just wandered around the rest of the zoo. We got to meet all the animals that Ryan works with. So he's running part of the bird department, all the animals Heather works with, which is the primates and the mammals. So we really got to see a really great overview of the whole park. We were there from limited open to the minute it closed and it really was such an incredible facility and I absolutely recommend if you haven't had the opportunity to go to Melbourne Zoo to definitely go I kind of envision the fact that it's Melbourne Zoo is in the middle of a city to look similar I guess like Taronga so sort of city-like around it but it's so beautiful it's surrounded by massive open fields lots of um, bushland so it feels almost like you're in the middle of nowhere even though you're 10 minutes out from the big CBD so it was really special so I definitely recommend if you haven't been there to go and check it out and Sea Life Melbourne too that was really cool it's a lot bigger than our facility I've got a lot larger array of fish and shark species they've just redone their oceanarium so it was cool to see how that's all looking some of their training uh, one of the girls was talking us through as well so yeah it was really fun couple of days pairing my favorite person ever Taylor Swift with animals <laughs> I thought I was your favorite person ever Daisy <laughs> my second favorite person Taylor Swift <laughs> no that sounds incredible like what a great weekend and I absolutely agree um, I haven't been to sea life down there but Melbourne Zoo is just phenomenal so definitely check it out if you haven't so excited to get into this episode Daisy mentioned before I think that this host is just oh, everyone's <laughs> host. Wow. This guest is just everyone's like, oh, all right, guys. Well, let's get into this episode. It is so exciting to have Tim Sullivan join us. So hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We absolutely loved it. Let's get into it. Yes, let's do it. Tim, thank you so much for joining Tess and I today. We are both so excited. Before we started this podcast, we wrote a list of our sort of our dream guests, I guess, and you are absolutely one of them. So it's really exciting that we're being able to have you on here. <laughs> Glad this is radio. You wouldn't see me blushing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're very, very excited. Um, but obviously, before we get into the nitty and gritty, we've got some really exciting questions and some really cool topics to chat today. We'd love to start our podcast with our fast five. So are you happy awesome. for us to get straight into that? Please do. Okay, question number one, sweets or savory? Uh, definitely sweets. Dogs or cats? dogs for sure favorite animal oh uh that's a tough one <laughs> the next one the next species i work with is, is my favorite <laughs> animal because i get to learn about them all over it's a brand new experience so i there, there's no species i or no animal that i don't feel is my next special one because the newest one is the most uh, special one to me i love that <laughs> that's such a good answer okay question number four summer or winter oh uh that's tough i do sports in both um I'm going to say winter. Okay. And finally, your favorite place you visited in Australia? Oh, it has to be Sunshine Coast. <laughs> nice. Good answers. That was great. <laughs> Very good <laughs> answers. The hardest part of the podcast is firing some random questions at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, well, like we said, Tim, we're really grateful for your time and we're so excited to chat about a few different things today. But generally, to start our podcast off, we really love hearing about everyone's pathways, um, how they sort of got into the industry and how that managed to get you to where you are and what you're doing now. I, I, I don't know if I took a non-traditional path. Of, I mean, it's, it's this, the ordinary one for me because it's the one I took. Uh, but my path to this industry uh, started at Burger King, of all places. <laughs> I, may have, I may have brought this up at the conference that we were at. Uh, but yeah, I was a, a swing manager at a Burger King when I was a senior in high school. And the owner of several stores uh, told me that someday uh, this store would be mine. And it hit me as like, oh, my God. I have to get a job someday and I, it's not going to be a Burger King. And I literally quit the next day out of fear. I didn't want to get caught up in working at Burger King and I didn't have any place to go. And my mom said, you know, Tim, you love animals. You're a competitive swimmer. Why don't you see if you can work at the dolphin show at the Brookfield Zoo, which was just 10 minutes from our home. And I thought about it and I said, well, yeah, I'll give that a try. And uh, so I got into a part-time job there uh, while I was going to college. And then I got a full-time job after that and worked with marine mammals for about 16 years. And then took a hard left-hand turn into elephants, uh, doing a protected contact program development there using positive reinforcement. Uh, that led me into the uh, whole new world of training people, uh, which or training people to train. And that was an eye-opener for me because I didn't necessarily have the skill set to do that. And thankfully, I started to, to under fire to get comfortable with that and that led into my current position which was the curator of behavioral husbandry and i've been doing that for the last uh, close to 27 years now wow wow <laughs> that's amazing yeah and um, so I... crazy hey like that you started off at burger king and that was such like a indication to you to really change it around and see what you wanted to do and ended up with what you're doing now which is incredible <laughs> And what's Burger King called in Australia? I forgot. It's got a different name, doesn't it? Burger Jacks or something like that? Or <laughs> <Burger> <laughs> Hungry, Hungry Jacks? Hungry, Hungry Jacks. Jacks, that's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you actually stumped me for a second too. I was like, what is it called? No, Hungry Jacks. <laughs> um, I love that you kind of implied to a whole new world of training animals to training people. We've said it a couple of times. Like, give us animals any day, hey? People, <laughs> people are tricky. So, uh, yeah, big change there. It is for sure. Yeah. But it was the most important one because it, I realized quite quickly that skill set is super important in this um, community, but it's also just important in life and that everything I was learning in that setting in the, in the Pachyderm house was going to help me become a better person. And, and it did. I, I learned so much from that experience in developing interpersonal skills, how to be tactful, how to be diplomatic, how to motivate people that had all sorts of different types of motivations they needed. And that really is, it was, uh, uh, I think my life, I, I feel like it's a little bit like Forrest Gump. I have every opportunity I've just kind of run into has been <laughs> revealed some fantastic new thing. And it's taken my life on this really um, zigzag journey, but each part of the, each zig and each zag really it set me out of course to becoming a better person. And, and uh, this, uh, I can't thank this industry and, and animals and people more than uh, this because it really has changed my life for the better. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like how you said about the different people's motivators, because I think it's the same as how we look at animals, like what is reinforcing to each person to be able to, you know, get them to progress or be the best, best that they can be of their ability in their, in their job and how that they can progress it too. So it's, it's great to be aware of that with people that you're managing too. 
Indeed, yep. Absolutely. Now, you're the Director of Behavioural Husbandry at Brookfield Zoo. Can you explain a little bit more about what your role entails and what your day-to-day looks like? Sure. So I, I manage a program, so I don't manage people, although I had some staff uh, on the enrichment side that were uh, enrichment technicians. But mostly my job is to manage a program, that being the animal training and environmental enrichment programs at the zoo. And that is, of course, has all sorts of prongs to it. The, the major prong, though, the most important one, is passing on the knowledge and, and, and upskilling all of the 106 animal care staff at Brookfield Zoo to make them better animal trainers, make them behavior uh, applied behaviorists in, in the good way. They can understand how to, to use operant conditioning and classical conditioning and environmental enrichment to improve the lives of animals and to modify their behavior. And then my job is to go out there and help them apply those skills. So it's one thing to understand the principles, but it's another thing to go into your setting, whether it's with herptofauna or birds or mammals, that you can take those skills that are ubiquitously effective, but that's where the art comes in, applying those skills in a way that changes the behavior of a frog or a kingfisher or an elephant uh, or a sea lion. And that's where I can go out there and really give them this, the actual practical skills to modify behavior, which is my favorite part because I love both helping them create a new behavior or modify uh, existing behavior, but also to solve problems because this industry, you get a lot of problems thrown in your in your path. And either you can hate those or you can learn to love them like I have because I love solving challenges and helping people learn how to do that. I don't see it as an impediment. I see it as a learning opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. What like what an incredible role in such a diverse role. Like you mentioned, obviously, every time you're going into a new training session, you could be working with who knows what species. Do you struggle, you know, making sure that the same skill set is applied to each animal with their different challenges? Or is it comes down to the fact that, you know, positive reinforcement is the same no matter what you're working with? It is. Yeah, it's, it's really reminding people that don't don't go into this depending on, you know, based on the species you're working with. Don't assume that. An orangutan's uh, easier to teach than a uh, a basilisk or a lizard, uh, and that you just—it's really about applying those skills and understanding the animal's natural history. What is their currency? What is the reinforcement that will motivate them? What, how do they interact with their environment? What can they physically do and can't do? And then take those wonderful operant conditioning skills, classical conditioning skills, and apply them with that natural history knowledge to come up with a behavioral product that you're looking for, the objective you're shooting for. And is that something that you usually do prior to entering is sit down with those trainers and work out, you know, sort of that training plan, those reinforcers, the motivators, et cetera, to allow you to have such, such good success? Exactly, yeah. So the first of all, some of the areas when I got into working with the herptofauna, I happened to be the uh, interim reptile keeper for what's supposed to be six months and turned out being five years. And I said, well, while I'm here, we may as well train some snakes or, or frogs or turtles. And uh, they were unsure about that. They weren't really sure the animals could learn. And I said, oh, they can learn. They can learn really well and really fast. And so I was able to help those staff both feel that joy of learning more about their animals. They go, they were actually excited after seeing what they could do and then saw their animals differently and say, wow, we've underestimated what these animals do and how they interact with the environment. And yeah, so I, I have to teach them both the process, how to implement it, but the simple things like how do you develop a shaping plan for uh, a, a tortoise or a, an alligator? 
and then how do you apply it? What tools do you use? And so that really is, uh, I'm a, a big fan of not teaching formulas. I wanna teach concepts because if you take the time to teach a concept, then they can generalize that. So it's not just how to use operant conditioning on a American alligator. You can also use it for a salt, croc salty crocodile or uh, a lizard or a, a boom slang or a you know, mamba. And if you see that as just being conceptual, you can then learn that, oh, this applies across species and across individuals. That really resonated with me with you saying, you know, not having these preconceived ideas like, oh, this is a orangutan, you know, they're so intelligent, this will be great. Having that same goal and having that same um, interest in, in a lizard or a reptile, that, that's a really great um, thought process to have before going in. I love it. Yeah, keeping your mind open to those things. Don't ever sell an animal short. The only thing mm -hmm. that really uh, is a limiting factor other than their physical abilities is your ability to see past what you think their limits are. Uh, and uh, if you can keep your mind open to possibilities, what they can physically do, you'll learn really quickly mentally, it comes right along with it because they're, they're very good at being a snake. You're not gonna have a snake try and be like a dolphin. Uh, and they're, they're, they're as smart as they need to be for their species. And you just have to tap into that intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel I like that. what you, what you're saying is going to lead in really nicely into the next question, because Tess and I were obviously really, really lucky to be able to meet and hear from you at the ASAK conference last year in the Gold Coast. And we, we talk about this conference all the time on the podcast, but it really was the inspiration <laughs> for this podcast. Um, and absolutely meeting you and hearing your insights into enrichment, mentoring and self-fulfilling prophecies as well. In our industry, for you, what, can a men what does a mentor look like? Yeah, mentors, uh, I mean, there's two ways to for mentoring to take place. One is the mentee, the, the future mentee seeks out knowledge from someone else that they want to, they're curious, they want to get better at what they're doing. And so they seek out someone that has that knowledge, has that experience. Uh, the other part of mentoring is someone sees someone that is either struggling or needs help, or they want to help just because they were helped like I was. I was mentored by people and I wanted to seek out mentoring opportunities so that I could kind of pay it forward, so to speak. And so it really is about knowledge exchange. Uh, my job as a, being a mentor was to make sure that I could pass on uh, things that I learned oftentimes the hard way and make it easier for that, a person to get from point A to point B without having to trip over all the logs that I did, that they can mm -hmm. uh, more quickly gain understanding about uh, an operant conditioning technique or understanding animal behavior to the point where their their skills and their knowledge grow exponentially versus kind of a linear path as they kind of careless, carelessly walk into new uh, information. You can help kind of like the matrix plug it into them sooner so they can have a, a, a better effect sooner with the animals, which means the animals are going to experience better welfare sooner. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there was an incredible quote maybe that you brought up at the conference or we heard that was being a mentor is paying it back by paying it forward. And I think that's such a great sort of quote to remember, especially in this industry that coming in can be really intimidating. 
I've recently transitioned, like over the last few years, transitioned from terrestrial into marine. And that was insanely overwhelming, um, learning a lot about different training. Um, and it was fantastic. And I'm really, really lucky to have a couple of mentors at work that have really guided me through that and really supported me. And I absolutely wouldn't be where I am now if it wasn't for them and the amount of time that they've put into me and my progression and my career. It's so important to remember just how valuable that person or you can be as that person too. Yeah, another key, key understanding is that if there's a point in everyone's career when they feel like they got it, you know, I'm, <laughs> I've got this down pat now and I can just rock and roll for the rest of my career, not realizing that there is so much more to learn and that you also have to keep your mind open for the next mentor. Uh, so you, you, the mentors that you've already been exposed to and that have helped you have helped you to a certain point, uh, oftentimes uh, to their level of experience and knowledge, but that there are people beyond that and you don't think you need them yet, but when you get to that part, that height on the mountain that you've just climbed uh, through your, your experiential learning, that you go, oh, I do need to see this, and I'm going to seek out mentors with different, more experience uh, or different experience to help you get faster through that new phase of your career. Yeah, absolutely. We're always learning, always learning. Yep. Actually, on that, this week, um, uh, someone that I work with just casually messaged me a training question or something. And she's like, oh, thanks so much, my mentor, um, little love heart. And I was like, I'm your mentor? And that blew my mind without me even realizing. So that's been a bit of an eye-opener for me. What are some things you would suggest um, to consider when being someone's mentor? Yeah, the hardest part is to remember that they don't see the world the way you do. If you've got 20 years of experience in you see the world totally different than the person that's been in the in the training industry or the zoo industry for two years. And you have to try and put yourself back to where they were so that you can talk to them in a way that you don't assume they understand something because sometimes they're just too shy to say, I don't know what you're saying. I don't get it. So you have to yeah. kind of get there for them. I'm experiencing this as a parent uh, because you know I've got two teenagers now and I'm trying to remember what life looked like as a teenager uh, and so I'm not acting like the person with all this kind of wisdom that I've gained over the last, you know, 60 some odd years that I have to see the world from their eyes so that I can provide them the right information at the right time in the right way so that they won't just turn me off, you know, that because, you know, dads, dads are and moms oftentimes are the least influential in a teenager's <laughs> life. It's the peer group that's important. And so I have to think like their peers and provide them information in, in just the right way that they're willing to accept it. And uh, I, and that means I have to get into their shoes again, which is helpful because it's good to remember how it was like to be a teenager and how cool and how scary that was and, and uh, empathize with them and sympathize in ways that make me a better mentor in that for my kids or for a trainer that's you know, kind of growing up, so to speak. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I feel like it goes back to what you were saying earlier about being aware of other people's uh, motivators, reinforcers. Have you found that in your experience with your, you know, being a mentor, I can imagine to a whole heap of people that people learn very differently as well. So you've had to adapt how you teach. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different learning styles. Um, my style is probably most common, which I'm, I'm, uh, I like, I learn best through doing. Uh, and I'm a very visual person, uh, but some people aren't like that. They need to read it or they need to hear it and coming up with different ways or you know, what we'll call multimodal, where you teach them and touching on all those things where they're actually doing it 
they're hearing it and they're seeing it either through videos or for me demonstrating it. Uh, you try and find the most efficient way to pass on knowledge. Uh, and typically like with our animals, if they're not understanding it, it's not their fault. I'm the one that's supposed to be providing the information. So I have to change my behavior so that I can find a new way to get information to them. And that's why people see me, I've been going to conferences for 40 years and they go, Tim, what the hell are you doing at a training 101 course? And I said, I go to every training 101 course because especially if it's a different person presenting it, because they're going to talk about the same stuff, but in different ways. And I'm going to learn maybe a new way to express or explain a, a training concept or an environmental enrichment concept that will work for that one person that I'm not getting to. And so I want to keep filling my quiver with different types of arrows so that I can have the right one available when I get that person that I'm having a hard time uh, having them understand a concept. Wow, that's, yeah, so in, so interesting. And like you said, there's just so much room for growth and there's so much development even as a mentor or mentoree. And like, I agree with you, I'm absolutely a visual learner and I make that pretty clear straight up. I'm like, you need to show me and then I'll be able to understand what you're talking about. I definitely can't yeah, read. Understanding <laughs> the personal side of it. Uh, some people like working with older animal care staff who are nervous because they haven't done this training thing before and they're afraid of it, not afraid of the training part, but afraid of being seen by junior trainers that in a way that they, they're not the best, most experienced person. They don't want to be seen failing or being wanting of information. So in that situation, I won't have them, I won't talk to them in the peer group. I will, I will pull them out of the peer group and say, let's, let's talk about these things alone uh, in a more comfortable environment. And let's train without people watching you to make them feel more comfortable understanding that their concern isn't about the animals and the information. It's more about what other people are thinking about. And so you can put them, it's again, we're setting the, the, the trainer up to succeed, like we set our animals up to succeed by uh, manipulating the environment in a way that's more conducive to learning for them. Yeah, absolutely. We And that relates actually quite well to, we had a uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago with a guy who's been working with animals for a very long time. And he's had a lot of newer trainers come through and he's like, I understand the concepts you're talking about, but I might not necessarily know the language that you're using that's yes. changing and ever evolving. So the concepts that are still the exact same, but we're just utilizing different ways of explaining it, different terminology as well. Yeah. And we can like, we can use approximation in all sorts of different things. We can approximate the language in, you know, start with what they know and yeah. work from there and, and, and work them, work the science in slowly. So you don't turn them off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Aside from mentoring, you know, probably one of the topics I took the most away out of the entire conference was the presentation that you did on self-fulfilling prophecies. And it wasn't something that I'd really thought too much about before listening to you. Can you expand on that a little bit and just kind of chat to us about what that means in relation to our field? Certainly. Uh, this is a, a, a great life skill that is effective both in your interpersonal relationships and life in general, but also in the workplace. Uh, it's the ability to understand that when you're predicting how future events are going to take place, your mindset affects the, the outcome before you even enter into the part where it's going to happen. And so if you're going to prophesize about uh, you know, walking into a training session or walking in, doing your first uh, talk at a, at a conference, and you come in there with a negative mindset, which is the most common, uh, that negative cognitive bias is so uh, powerful because human beings place more weight on negative things than they do on positive experiences. And so most likely 
uh, people without influence are going to think about failure ahead of time. And just the thought of thinking about failure, having a, a negative prophecy will change your behavior in such a way that an animal, especially animals, because they read subtlety, they see that your behavior is changed and they get nervous or they see something new and you can actually affect the outcome of the, the training session or the show you're doing by your negative prophecy. And there's that's just common. And so the best way to counter that is to know that the opposite is also true. If you come into it with a positive cognitive bias that you you imagine success, you prophesy success, that that changes your mentality, your perceptions of things that are happening. And then the animal sees an opportunity for success versus an opportunity for failure. And you're more likely to have success with that cognitive um, predisposition walking into the session. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't take away the need to have good skill, good understanding mm -hmm. of training and enrichment, <laughs> but it, it is a, a amplifier of those skill sets because a cognitive uh, or a negative uh, prophecy versus a positive prophecy will affect your ability to use those skills and knowledge in a productive way. Yeah, I love it so much. I remember just how much it resonated with me listening to that and even thinking of like riding my bike when you're little and there's like two trees and dad's like, don't look at the trees, don't look at the trees, go through the trees, like look through and like, I want to go through there. This will be successful. I'm not going to hit the trees. And that's, that's when you don't, when you look where you want to go and you yep. see yourself doing yep. it correctly. They call that target um, fixation. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I would even notice it since listening to your presentation, um, you know, if I would know that a bird with a heavier weight or it's windy, I already have this preconceived idea that this is not going to be a great show and I might be hanging on to them a little bit tighter or having a tighter grip and like you have to tell yourself no just relax relax your hand I can just imagine this is going to go well if I'm relaxed and you notice the difference absolutely if you're relaxed the birds relaxed uh, or your animals relaxed it, it just makes so much sense that you're um, emitting this feeling towards the animal that you're working with. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, what typically happens is those negative experiences, negative prophecies or positive prophecies are based on your experiences, oftentimes the most current experiences that you had. And the best thing to remember is that history does not predict the future, but it can inform the future. And so uh, what happened yesterday in the training session is not any more likely to happen this time around than it was the last time. But you could, with that information, to act differently in a positive way to make sure the animal is set up to succeed. Yeah, I love that so much. <laughs> now, um, what are some of the things that prophecies can be created or affected by? You know, the, the one I see is, is typically the peer group, your, your colleagues, you know, uh, the labeling animals uh, saying, you know, hey, watch out today. She looked a little bit of uh, uh, X or Y or Z and that also all of a sudden puts a bias into your head, which is start going to affect your perception and, and how you're going to act in front of the animal. Uh, even giving biases to an entire species, you know, saying that you know snakes are dumb or uh, this bird or that bird uh, act differently because of their species, when in fact you don't give them the the grace of being individuals within that species. Uh, we 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 don't grade on a curve with those guys. We look at each individual as an individual. Uh, but if we put a big nasty label on 
uh, an entire species, all of a sudden you can affect the entire uh, group you're working with because you come in with this negative mindset. I think um, a question I might have actually even asked you during this presentation with that. So if you have an animal that possibly has prior history of aggression or like how important, like how much should we be informing people so we don't want to tell them, you know, too much of they're going into this session with that negative thoughts and slightly possibly scared. But obviously there's a certain amount that you need to make sure that person is aware of with their prior history or their prior precursors. What, how much do you think is important to be able to pass on? What's important is to not get away from the label and, and describe the interpretation, describe the behavior you saw. You know, I was working with this animal. I started seeing them get their, there was a tension in their body. They weren't paying attention. They were paying attention to something else in the environment. Uh, I saw them, uh, you know, almost like they were getting anxious about uh, the next reinforcement. And th this led to the animal, I think, getting frustrated and it turned into this behavior, it, it, the animal uh, dove at the bucket or dove at me. That is aggression, but it gives the person more information that they can change any one of those things and look out for them and say, okay, what caused that tension? And, and was mm -hmm. it the, the environmental setting that I can then modify to make sure that animal's more comfortable? If the animal's fixed it in the food bucket, that might mean they're just too hungry and, they, and their, their vision goes down to, I just need food. Well, you might then say, I'm going to give them a pound of fish or whatever before the session to take that edge off so they're not so concerned about getting the next food. And then their their mind starts to open up because then they can start learning again. It's not about the next fish or the next piece of meat uh, or the next uh, whatever you're feeding it. Uh, they can think about thinking and, and being successful, and that reduces that anxiety. So it's more about what can I do to change that situation practically? What are the environmental factors, the antecedents that I can correct uh, to avoid that from happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a perfect answer. How can, you know, going into those sessions with those thought process either positively or neg negatively affect our training? Yeah, so again, uh, I, I'm always leading towards setting up for success, of course, uh, but the, the it starts with you being aware of your, your internal dialogue that you're having with yourself, uh, being aware that you're actually coming in with a negative attitude or you're, you're, you're you know, prophesizing failure, realizing and go, okay, stop. How do I fix this? How do I turn this around and look at the positive side? When we talk about tools like self-affirmation, uh, where you go, you know what, I'm a good trainer. I've done this before. I've been very successful. That last session was the anomaly, not the rule. And I, I can take the skills that I have to set this animal up to succeed. So it really is about, you know, being aware of what's going on in your head, that dialogue, and then saying, okay, I'm setting myself up to fail here because there's a negative message. I need to flip the script and come in with positive uh, mentality, but also practical ways in which to uh, assure that success is more likely to happen. What are some, um, uh, when you were saying this before, like what are some key things to consider before entering the training session um, or interaction with the animals other than um, your mindset? Yeah, you know, I think it comes down to, I think I said this in the talk that I did, uh, one good exercise is visualization, visualizing success, walking through the training process, have your target and your whistle, your clicker ready, and just in the room, think about how it, in your brain, you can actually close your eyes to see a lot of Olympic swimmers and divers or gymnasts going through the routine in their head, and you actually see them moving their body because they're trying to involve more senses 
to uh, make that visualization more real, which is going to have a, a more physical effect on your how the, the animal is going to view you. But yeah, how, how am I going to place the target? If the animal does X, what am I going to do? If the animal does Y, what am I going to do? It's, it's all that preparation, but you're actually seeing success happening. And uh, that, I think, in itself, that practice ahead of time before approaching the animals is going to have a great uh, chance of having a positive effect on the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you said that. One of um, my colleagues, every time I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a training session with this animal, for example, she's like, okay, well, what are you doing though? Like, yeah, what's what are your you, goal? What, what's your goal? Like, you, you can't just pick that animal up and just, you know, do things. Like, what are you going to achieve out of that? Whether it's for your growth or whether it's for the animal's growth, go into that session with something. And she goes on and on and on. And I'm very grateful for it because now every single time I go to pick up an animal, I'm like, what are we achieving today? Like, this is food and it's valuable. And I want to be able to achieve something on both the animal's behalf and my behalf too. Yeah, that going into session with our goal is a big problem. And I think a lot of it is fear-based. Uh, what we call the, it's the unaimed arrow. The unnamed arrow never misses. So if you don't set a goal, you never fail to achieve it. Uh, and so if you understand that that might be one of the reasons why people aren't thinking about their goal for the session, fear might be a part of it because you, it, if you don't, you can't fail if you don't have a point to, to measure it by. Yeah. <laughs> I, also, I also think it's important not just to be ticking a box. I think um, if you have lots of animals to train in one day, it's not like, okay, I'm going to do this and then this one and this one. It's not just tick them off, cross their name off. It's, yeah, like you said, having a goal first is very important. Yeah, and be engaged. Yeah, just don't go through the routine. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I do before I go out for any SEAL presentation now is I do my power pose, which is my Superman pose with my <laughs> hands on my hips, and I just think I'm invincible when I go out. <laughs> <laughs> there's still a whole things that tend to go wrong but it it sets me up to try and go out with a really positive and like excited mindset yes i i, I had actually a picture in my slide of the uh the positive self-fulfilling prophecy it is a superpower if you yeah. learn how to, to harness it and use it yeah absolutely okay tim so we do have a couple of questions from our socials that we asked our listeners so question one, number one was what was the most difficult animal that you've trained you know, I'm going to have to say there was that when I went over to start the protected contact positive reinforcement elephant program, uh, there was an elephant named Christy, and she was one of the younger females. I think she was eight years old at the time, and she was a very skittish animal under the old traditional kind of coercion method. Uh, she would, when we changed over, she would was slow to come up to sessions. Uh, when she, you gave her a cue she just started with the first behavior she knew and she went through each behavior because what was happening before under the old traditional method of elephant training, she would just do all of her behaviors until she stopped hearing the word no or, or receiving the correction. And that's sad. It's going to make me cry even thinking about it, that the animal, that's how they lived. But so she was doing the same thing when we were trying to teach her positive reinforcement. She just didn't want to be a part of the learning process. She didn't understand it. She had, what I'll say is she didn't have any self-confidence. And so we realized that we were going to have to go back and retrain like 50 behaviors that she knew so that we get them under stimulus control. And not, we wouldn't have to do everything. Once we kind of got a behavior out there associated with a new cue, then we would have that, you know, we'd start to build that stimulus control as we, that we needed. And as we started build, rebuilding that behavior and getting her uh, having more success than failure, she stopped guessing, which was good. And I, I can't, it's hard to say, 
in her eyes. Her eyes showed this, I get it. <laughs> First time in my eight year life, I get this stuff and I can control it. I can be successful. And she was coming up to sessions quickly. She, she enjoyed training. She goes, yeah, give me that cue. I know what I need to do. And so it was hard up front because she was, it was just frustrating for her. It was frustrating for us. And I had to rethink about what was it like to learn under punishment, under negative reinforcement, and then flip that script. How can I get this animal who hates learning to love it? And I went back to my own personal experience that I, when I was in parochial school, when I was being taught by nuns where they use mostly punishment, I hated school. I didn't, I didn't do well. I was afraid to fail. But then when I started to get good teachers and they used positive reinforcement, they helped me uh, by being a better teacher. I enjoyed those classes. And then when I was able to choose my teachers and choose my classes, I started to enjoy learning again. So I think I, we, we were kind of um, uh, together. We, we've, we lived similar experiences and I was able to relate to her in that way from my uh, kind of introduction to the learning process. And I learned really quickly, it's not about teaching any particular behavior, it's creating good students, students that love learning and they love the process. And if you do that, if you spend the time helping animals be successful, you're gonna have a lifelong learner and they're gonna learn a lot quicker as a result of that. So that it was a tough experience, but I think it was, again, I pulled something really important out of that as a life skill and as a life lesson that I was able to apply now to lots of animals. Yeah, wow. And you know, what a reinforcing like ex experience for all of you guys as well to be able to have had that success with that particular elephant. Am I right in saying that, was it the elephants that you had to change your team up a little bit so that they had the best mindset yeah. around positive reinforcement? It's unfortunate. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, that type of uh, teaching, that type of, it's a lifestyle, it's a religion. Uh, it's a belief system that I have, to, as a human being, I have to dominate the, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, 800, or I'm sorry, yeah, is it, I'm trying to convert pounds to kilos, this uh, 5,000 kilo animal, I have to dominate it as, a, as an 80 kilo human being. And that's just ridiculous. <laughs> but that's what they feel. They, they, it's a win or lose. We have, the, the trainer has to win. The elephant can never win or else they lose respect for you, quote unquote. Uh, and it really was that mentality, that that mindset that that was so hard to change because I can't imagine they they didn't do the same things in life. They have to win. It was all about, you know, transactional uh, life where I give you something, but I have to always win. And that was hard to do. And people, some people didn't want to change. Uh, other people's left on their own accord because they didn't like where we were going. They didn't think it was right. And either way, we were able to start and bring in new people with that didn't have that mindset, that belief system, and, and to raise them in a way that was positive and had uh, uh, the, the ethics and, and the welfare of the animals in mind first. Yeah, I think that's such a good reminder that you don't necessarily have to have the particular species experience. If you have an understanding of the core values of the training, you can work with any animal and that, that experience with that species can grow, but you are you know, positive about the way that you're going to be training going forward. And that's, that's a great start. Yeah, you need a good foundation. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm pregnant and a bit emotional. So even hearing you saying that, that Christy <laughs> the elephant thing, <laughs> learning and wanting to participate in the sessions, I was like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> so <laughs> I can imagine you being there and experiencing that would just be 
you know, monumental, um, which actually leads to the next question was what was one of your most favorite behaviors, but it might've also been that too. Hey, like, yes, it was difficult, but uh, it might've been one of your favorites. Um, do you have any other favorite behaviors that you've experienced throughout Gosh. your career? Yeah, I, I, they're, they're favorites for different reasons. Some that they were extremely challenging, some research behaviors I've trained or injection behaviors or something that had an aversive component to it. Those are always uh, rewarding to be able to get past that. But sometimes it's just the simplest thing. You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day with dolphins. Um, the, the amount of time and effort it takes to put into a trained behavior when you're in a performance environment, we have to you know, create behaviors for a show. Um, the amount of effort you put into the training doesn't necessarily equate the amount of applause you get <laughs> for that behavior. Something that's super <laughs> complex and like took two years to train, they're like <laughs> golf clap, you know? <laughs> like, really? Don't you understand how hard this was? And I do a simple behavior with a dolphin. I remember I did one, uh, we wanted to demonstrate that air came out of the dolphin's blowhole, not their mouth. And so I said, how can I visually demonstrate that I go, a balloon? And so I created this little device that had like a rubber bottom to it for a seal on a piece of PVC and then put a weather balloon on the top of it and put it over the dolphin's blowhole and then train them to chuff, which was a medical behavior they did. And basically it would just fill the balloon up really quickly. And it was very, and people were like, oh my God, woo! And ovation. I'm like, that took literally three days to train. <laughs> so those are, there. there's good behaviors for different reasons, but uh, in the end, the challenging ones, the ones that people told you aren't possible uh, like, you know, sticking a five inch needle in an animal's back for a, for a birth control, a monthly birth control shot, uh, or doing daily, you know, injections for insulin for a di di diabetic animal. Those are super rewarding. And I, I think those are the ones that I go, yeah, see, uh, told you so we can, we can mm -hmm. do lots with this technology. Yeah. I, I think for me always like comes down to cooperative care behaviors. Like every time I see them or the advancements in them, I'm like, this is incredible that we're able to do this like you know and it's probably evolved a lot since you've been in the field but yeah every single time I learn or hear about something new that someone's done to provide better welfare and better medical care to the animals it's just blows your mind hey yeah and it changed my life I I went from wanting to train the, the best show behavior ever like a triple twisting triple flip dolphin behavior and then I saw a video the first video of a killer whale giving a voluntary blood sample I go holy crap, that's important. <laughs> we need to be doing that. This is big. And it totally changed what I thought was important to change my mentality on what we can do with this technology because it it, broke, it shattered the glass ceiling. And I go, well, if you can do that, what else can you do? And it just evolved from there. Absolutely. I think what's even better than what you said with the like, huh, told you so, like can do something is doing that to yourself. Like I have had um goals in mind and like that's just never gonna be feasible that you know that's never gonna be something that we can achieve and then you've done it and you're like i definitely thought a few years ago that we could never do this and now we do it every day like that's yep. even better than proving others wrong is proving yourself, proving yourself wrong. wrong yeah it's yeah very, very true yeah absolutely um, well, our final question is obviously, you know, you're, you're so aware being you've been in the field for a long time and training has constantly evolved. Have you ever struggled to remain current with the new learning findings, the science of applied behavior? 
Yeah, you know, it's um, the the higher you, up, you move up in an organization, the more responsibilities you get. And uh, <laughs> so my ability to go to conferences, I can't just, you know, I, I have so many responsibilities at work that I can't just take off to every conference. I used to do that all the time. I used to go work at different facilities for a couple of weeks just to see how they how they trained and uh, staying current with reading and, and watching podcasts or, or TEDx talks. I used to do that all the time, but my job is so complex now that I don't get opportunities to do that. And I feel like, uh, A, I've, I'm behind the times uh, a bit. And, I, and that's why I want to see as much as I can when I'm at a conference. I don't miss any talks. I want to see everything so that I have an opportunity to absorb something new, something I didn't understand because I just don't have the time to kind of go searching like I used to do. Uh, so yeah, it, it's always hard to stay current uh, as your job gets more and more complex and more responsibilities. But that's that's the game. You know, you, you have to understand that you can't keep up with everything. But what you can do is keep up with your humility to remember that you don't know everything, that there is something out there you don't understand. And every moment that you have available, free time, discretionary time, use it to try and find that information or expose yourself to something new. And that I think if you can stay uh, humble uh, is the best thing, stay curious. You're gonna, you're always gonna find that information and, and keep learning. Yeah, absolutely. Humble and curious. I think that's really solid advice there. I think a lot of people will take from that. <laughs> we have been starting to um, take amazing quotes from our um, podcast guests and, and put it on an image. <laughs> and now, like every time you said something, like, oh, that's so good that we got to quote that. <laughs> quote Tim, quote Tim, quote Tim. Quote Tim. <laughs> Somebody will say that again. I go, I really said that. <laughs> <laughs> we listen to everything. <laughs> Tim, it has been an incredible honor. I can't express how much of an inspiration that you've been to both Tess and I. And I can imagine so many of the listeners today that are, that are able to listen to this conversation so thank you for spreading your knowledge for spreading awareness and the constant advancements of training and sharing everything that you do we actually had a couple of questions that came through for you that were about enrichment and I'm like guys we're gonna get Tim back for enrichment because that's a whole, <laughs> whole other episode field, yeah. that's a whole other episode so we'd absolutely love to have you back on but thank you so much for your time today we're so grateful well, yeah. it's, it's my pleasure thank it you. warms my heart to be able to do this so it, 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 the pleasure is all mine thanks so much Tim thank you all right guys take care Wow, I feel like me and you are a little bit giddy after that episode, Tess. That was so interesting and so awesome for us to be able to have the opportunity to chat to Tim all over again following our conference that we had with him last year, which was so inspirational and so beneficial for me and you and I'm sure everyone that attended. So we really hope today that you guys got a lot out of that episode. And like I said, we are hopeful to grab Tim back on the podcast again in the future to chat all about enrichment because he is a bit of an enrichment guru. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I think we could not have fit in any more. <laughs> so <laughs> enrichment next episode for sure. He just speaks so eloquently and keeps you so engaged. So hope you liked it as much as we did. We'll definitely have him back on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode. We are so excited to be back in your ears next week. But until then, have a lovely week and we'll speak to you soon. Bye.